Continuing education credits for physicians and other healthcare professionals is provided by VCU Healthcare Continuing Education. Check out cribsiders.vcuhealth.org for more information. The Cribsiders podcast is for entertainment, education, and informational purposes only. The views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of the host. Welcome back to the Cribsiders. Hello. I'm just oh. Brian Ward. <laughs> Welcome to the team. This is great to have you. How's it going? Oh, things are good. Things are good here in Nashville, Tennessee. Just watching some great Nashville SC soccer and some NHL Stanley Cup playoff. Lots of lots of sports. I feel like really geared up for this sports medicine episode. What a perfect segue into the content of this episode. We are excited to have Brian Ward is has been a long-standing producer on the show. Also, Brian, true unsung hero award to you for always doing the the newsletter on a weekly basis, which we don't give appreciation to enough. They are knowledge so thank food you for formula all your feeds bolus weekly. That's right. Q- Q- You're the feeding. You're the knowledge food chef, uh, as they would say, or nutrition consultant at the it's very least. At least twenty k cows an email. That's right. Well, we appreciate all the work that you do. We appreciate your doing producing for this show. And once again, um, not always getting to take full credit for all your work because unfortunately we're not able to be on the episode today, but your efforts and, and collaboration really made this a, a great topic and a great episode that we're excited to share with people. Well, thank you. I appreciate you saying that. It's very kind, Chris. Well, Chris, too. Chris isn't Chris. here, but let's thank him. It, we're all the same. People can't see our face. It's the audio. <laughs> One voice is, is just as uh, recognizable as the other. They don't know who we are. We're going to move on. We're going to keep it going, though. We're going to talk about our guest tonight, Dr. Alyssa Condi. She is here discussing overuse injuries uh, and in sports medicine. Before we do that, I'm going to remind you a little bit about the show. We are the Pediatric Medicine Podcast, interviewing leading experts in the fields to bring clinical pearls, practice-changing knowledge, and answer lingering questions about core topics in pediatric medicine. We have a fantastic conversation with our guest, Dr. Condi. Dr. Allison Condi is a pediatric sports medicine physician in Cincinnati. She has a particular interest in caring for young athletes with a very special interest in gymnastics, given her previous background as a competitive gymnast herself. Dr. Condi has years of professional clinical experience in pediatric sports medicine, and as a team physician also on the sidelines of high school, club, and collegiate sporting events. Our conversation ranges, get it, from which physical exam techniques are the most high yield to what to do with all those crackles and pops in your knee. So without further ado, I, I, let's kick it. I think this episode is 10 out of 10. Judges took no no deductions off. These are some great sports puns. Uh, we could keep going, but but Brian, we, re- we really need need to get oh. going. Oh. Need. Oh, no. Knee. Ah! Dr. Alyssa Condi, welcome to the show. Thank you for joining us here at the Cribsiders. Awesome. Thanks for having me. <laughs> we are pumped to have you. We're talking about overuse injuries. I overly get confused about these types of injuries. That was forced. Uh, but we are excited to learn from you. Before we do that, we're an informal group. I want to make sure, is it okay if we call you by your first name, Alyssa? It is. Absolutely. Thank you, Alyssa. We're all friends. Justin, Chris, we have producer Cole on the line. We would love to get to know you a little bit better. I know I would like to, get to know you a bit better. I think Chris does too. Yeah, yeah. And so- would love to hear, you know, from you a little bit of an introduction, maybe a one-liner about who you are, something you do outside of medicine. Tell the world, Alyssa Condi, uh, who do we have today? 
Um, well, uh, currently I'm a clinician educator, dog mom with Island Roots, retired gymnast, and I get to watch sports for a living. I'm there, you know, to cheer on my athletes, to make sure they're getting great care on the sideline and in the clinic. But mostly, I'm really there just in case an emergency happens. But otherwise, I'm just having a good time and watching sports. Yeah, you figured it out. You have a good gig of, uh, of the <laughs> exactly. sports uh, spectator as a job. What was your forte in gymnastics? Were you a vault, a floor? Uh, oh, that's awesome. The other ones? So I'm, I'm glad you're able to list off the events. Um, <laughs> Not the rings though, right? <laughs> no, no, that's a men's event. Yeah. So if you ask me, which most people do, I usually uh, kind of tell them I was a like a power gymnast. So I, I thought I performed the best on the vault and the floor exercise. Mm. I dabbled in theater a little bit growing up. So I got to perform a lot on the floor. So I enjoyed ah. that. But if you asked my parents, they thought I was a better uh, uneven bar and balance beam athlete. Oh, so wow. for whatever reason. But those were a lot more anxiety provoking for me. So I en I enjoyed <laughs> them a lot less. I just trust watching those. So I hear Absolutely. that. Absolutely. Yeah, it's stressful. So you said that you were, you're an educator, right? So, you know, in our podcast, we like to do a lot of, you know, career development for our listeners. So what's the best advice you ever received as either a learner or as a teacher or even in your career that you would like yeah. our listeners to hear about? So I'm I'm blessed enough to take on this educator role early in my career. So I still have a lot of learning, you know, myself to do in this role. But I think probably the best piece of advice I ever got, you know, going through this whole process and discovering truly what joys I found in providing care and in healthcare um, was to find your tribe. I and it's interesting because I feel like. I've heard other people talk about that being the best advice that they've gotten to, you know, thinking that's a special piece that was given to you by somebody, you know, a mentor, a role model. But, you know, and, and I initially took that on as what was my just kind of primary calling and residency. So, you know, I thought when I went in this journey, I was going to be a surgeon. That was all I knew as a gymnast growing up. I was going to be an orthopedic surgeon and that's how I was going to make my impact, you know, in healthcare and quickly realized it wasn't for me and found my tribe in pediatrics. You know, I'm, I'm a pediatrician, you know, by training. I say that to all my patients. That's the underlying kind of drive to a lot of my practice, but a sports specialist, you know, at heart and in mind and in advice as well. So, you know, finding that tribe in pediatric sports medicine, there's no better place for me to be. Oh, I love, I feel like Chris and I med peds tribe. I feel yes, like we yes. had kind of a similar... <laughs> That and um, the prison tribe a little bit for me. I prison <laughs> stuff, but we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna skip over that. I am excited to talk to a sports doc about sports. I recently become a huge Caitlin Clark women's March Madness basketball fan. Yeah. I'm very sad that it's over. Do you have a favorite sport to watch? A favorite team is bowling a sport? Just talk. Let's talk sports. <laughs> what, what what do we got? Bowling is totally a bowling sport. is a sport. We actually do see quite a bit of bowlers in our clinic. Actually, believe it or not, in the winter time. You know, it, it sounds kind of overplayed at this point, just in the first few minutes of the podcast, but gymnastics is my love. So while, you know, in between breaks during a softball series up at Miami University, I'm one of the team physicians there, kind of the 30 to 60 minutes in between games, I was live streaming, you know, the NCAA championships for women's gymnastics and really cool to watch um, an athlete from my alma mater. I went to the University of Florida for undergrad, Trinity Thomas, you know, score her 28th, you know, career 10.0 to tie with two other women, you know, in NCAA gymnastics. So it was history in the 
making and it's something that I really enjoy still, you know, as a, as a retired gymnast to, to watch and enjoy and, you know, care for athletes who love that sport too. But honestly, I love me some college football too. (laughs) That's, it's like quite the, the extreme spectrum of, of sport and, and what we do and injuries we care for. But there's, there's something about standing on the sideline on a Saturday game covering college football. That's really exciting to me. So I I have one quick question. So as, as a sports medicine doctor, what's the most interesting sport that you've come across? You're like, Oh, I didn't realize that was a sport. Yeah. So up at Miami in Oxford, we cover synchronized skating. Um, So we have athletes who are trained in ice skating and ice dance. 16 athletes take the ice and do a choreographed performance with lifts and different styles and techniques. And it's incredible. And, you know, I'd never covered that until I went and trained and did my fellowship. And I get really excited and enthusiastic about talking about that sport as well. There's so much athleticism and performance that goes into it. It's amazing. So one thing I never thought in my life I would ever cover or have any hand in would be synchronized skating. And I've been blessed and fortunate <laughs> enough to travel with them internationally, too. Wow. So it's a lot of fun. Yeah, it's it's a blast. Very That's cool. a great answer. I thought you were going to say like Quidditch or something where like <laughs> we had... In college, people run high line, maybe? Yeah. <laughs> we right. We do have club sports. I I haven't had the opportunity to get involved in our club sports, but we do have things like that up at any college campus. You can imagine they get really creative. But yeah, yeah. synchronized skating. That's amazing. I was going to say we're going to synchronize skate into some content now. Yes, absolutely. And get started about some questions. <laughs> we're um, so in sync on that one. That was that so perfect. Insane. Perfect. Yeah. Felt perfect seamless. segue. No deductions. We, ah, the 10. <laughs> hey, everyone. Sorry for the quick interruption, but I do need to tell you about an amazing podcast sponsoring today's episode. Healthcare for Humans podcast covers that missing piece in our clinical education, delivering culturally responsive care. So culturally responsive care means going beyond textbooks and protocols. It's recognizing that each child and family brings unique beliefs, values, and experiences, shaping their health perceptions. Sadly, this gap leaves us grappling to bridge medical expertise and cultural understanding. The Healthcare for Humans podcast fills that void, empowering you with knowledge to respect diverse backgrounds. For example, caring for Spanish-speaking patients? Do you understand their anxiety as DACA recipients? What support do these children need? Through expert interviews, personal narratives, and discussions, they navigate cultural nuances, dismantle biases, and foster genuine connections. Tune in to the Healthcare for Humans podcast on your favorite podcast platform every two weeks to improve your knowledge about diverse communities. Visit www.healthcareforhumans.org for more information. That's www.healthcareforhumans.org. Together, let's bridge the gap in culturally responsive care. So we're going to dive into some content. Uh, it's me and Chris on air today. But we have beautiful strips from our producers, and I'm going to start with the first question or the first uh, scenario. And to set the scene, uh, it's a chilly winter afternoon. A 12-year-old named Anton and his father present to the clinic for some bilateral anterior knee pain. He reports the left is worse than the right, and the pain started about a year ago. So this has been going on for a long time. He's here for a well-child check, and they just kind of spring this on you that for the past year he's had this pain. Never had any specific injury, but does feel pain in the front of his knee. It used to only be after long practices, but now he is kind of getting it more and more often. He's been icing his knees after every practice using ibuprofen with some relief. He's able to play basketball, his sport of choice, 
but is limping by the end of the game. He's no history of knee problems. His exam does show some mild tenderness when you palpate the knee. He's able to move his knee, though, full range of motion, has full strength. With this type of uh, knee injury, how does someone smarter than us approach this knee pain? What, what's going on when a sports expert like yourself sees a basketball player with chronic knee pain, both legs, left, worths, and right? What's your approach? Yeah, so I think the the best approach to really any, you know, musculoskeletal complaint, sports injury is you got to go back to your roots. You got to go back to your anatomy. So anatomy is key in driving, you know, a lot of kind of where your differential comes from, what are the structures and the main points that you're going to be trying to separate, what could be the cause of their, in this case, anterior knee pain. You know, fortunately, we got a lot of clues in the history for kind of how to organize our differential and where our thoughts go. So the age of the patient, the activity that they do, the chronicity of the pain, right? So it's been going on for a year, the location, and potentially it's bilateral. Um, and typically, you know, in using some of those clues, we can kind of redirect what our thought process would be and what we're trying to diagnose. Typically, when I have any approach to a knee exam, I actually try to divide the knee into like sections or quadrants. So you have the anterior knee, thinking about your anatomy structures there, which we'll dive into a little more detail here in a few minutes, your medial knee, your lateral knee, and your posterior knee. Within the anterior knee, I think you can even divide that into another four quadrants and kind of look at your anatomy a little bit more closely. And then kind of based off of what you're discovering on your exam, you can kind of organize and highlight what's, what's coming from your differential. The other advice that I would give, you know, to folks who are trying to master their musculoskeletal exams is keeping a consistent, you know, approach to each. And the approach that I've maintained, you know, over the years in my practice is always inspection, palpation, range of motion, strength, and then your special tests. And that can help kind of delineate where you go from there once you discover more of that information. Now, do you use the same special tests every time? Like, do you have like, this is my set routine that I'm, I'm always at least going to get these things done. Absolutely. So, and that's how I know, even though I know slam dunk, you know, from the history that they've given me and just even through inspection, sometimes I know 95% of the time I can come up with a diagnosis without a complete exam, but I always do a complete exam of that joint just to make sure that I can provide myself some reassurance, the family and the patient some reassurance that there isn't any other pathology going on that couldn't explain, you know, what's going on just, you know, from what the what they've given us in history. So typically, as far as special testing for the knee, I always actually do um, a hip and a knee exam at the same time. Because as we know, in pediatrics, hip pathology can cause some knee pain. And so I always include a good thorough hip exam with my knee exam. And that's kind of mixed in, but it's always the same kind of algorithm all the way through. And once I get down to special testing, the my typical approach is to look at their ligaments. And so I look and do special testing for their ACL, for their PCL, which includes the anterior and posterior drawer tests with the knee flexed up on the table. An anterior and posterior Lachman's test, which takes a little bit more skill and practice. And you get used to that once you kind of... Um, 
feel what a normal knee should feel like and then feel what a knee with actual pathology has. And then I look at the medial collateral ligament, the lateral collateral ligament with stress, look for any um, pain or clicking with their meniscus, and then um, kind of do a more uh, a focused kind of strength test, especially looking at things like um, what this athlete may have, like Oshkosh slaughters. And so looking at what a straight leg extension from a seated flex position off the table would look like that can direct some strength, that can direct pain, that can direct if there's any crepitus or inflammation. And so we look at those things specifically. But regardless, if I know they have Oshkosh slaughters, I'm testing their ACL and their meniscus as well, just to kind of make sure you know, we're not missing anything. And I can tell that family, hey, I don't think they have any of these things. They've just got, you know, good old Oshkosh slaughters. Now, you were talking about when you're doing your ACL, PCL testing that you do both anterior, posterior drawer and Lachman's as well. Can you explain sort of the difference? Because I've always, I've heard from different people that they sort of test the same things and that you should probably rely one or the other. And I've actually had some orthopods tell me that, you know, anterior posterior drawer aren't that great because of the positioning. And so actually Lachman's is what you should use. So can you explain that a little bit and maybe clarify for me? You're absolutely correct. Um, and so the the anterior posterior drawer and the anterior posterior Lachman's do test the same thing. Anterior testing the anterior cruciate ligament or the ACL and those posterior tests testing your PCL, your posterior cruciate ligament. The anterior and posterior drawer have fallen out of favor just due to the lack of their sensitivity. They're difficult to test. But I would almost argue a little bit Lachman's are really challenging, especially for a novice, um, having not examined a knee in that way before. They are more sensitive and specific. Um, essentially, how you conduct a Lachman's test, just for those out there who don't know, you have to stabilize the distal femur in your hand. Typically, I stabilize it in my non-dominant hand just to kind of provide that stability. And what you're testing is the translation of the tibia against a stabilized femur. And so what you do is you grip, you know, a portion of that proximal tibia. And when, if you feel like you've got good and you've stabilized the distal femur, you translate forward to see what the laxity would be of that anterior cruciate ligament. And then you translate posteriorly to see if there's any translation or laxity to the posterior cruciate ligament. There's lots of ways to describe your findings, you know, based off of this. You can just describe the depth of translation. You can you can describe it as having, you know, slight translation with a firm endpoint. So you feel like maybe there's movement, but you get a solid endpoint where you feel like there's at least some fibers are intact. You can describe a boggy or a soft endpoint, and that sometimes can kind of guide and direct the feeling. So it's all based off of feel. These exams can be really challenging. I mean, I have small hands. So if I have a 300-pound lineman who needs to come in and I need to examine for their ACL, I don't know that I'm getting, you know, a full grip or hands around that. And so finding other tests, though they be less sensitive and specific, could be helpful to at least give me an idea if it's worthwhile, you know, pursuing some additional imaging. But as we kind of discussed, mechanism and then just presentation and things typically drive our need to evaluate this further with some type of imaging. I also learned from one of our orthopods here, um, he uses what he calls a knee pillow, which is just a foam roller. Um, and you kind of 
place it underneath that distal portion of the femur, and that provides your femur stability. So all you're responsible for is, you know, you can hold and grip and stabilize from the top now that the femur is kind of in its control, and all you're responsible is trying to translate that tibia. So it's a nice little tool that I use, especially for my larger athletes where I may not feel like I get a good grip around their knee to perform that exam, but those are kind of the styles and techniques that we use in clinic. And so it sounds like your approach is very anatomical, where you're almost localizing like this is the location of the tendon based on a physical exam. And can you kind of talk about what the differential is for for knee pain or how that might change if it's acute versus chronic? Are you looking for things like tendonitis for ACL tear for ostrich slaughters? Can, can you talk about kind of what you're going through in your mind and maybe even briefly how each exam maneuver is helping you um, decipher that? Yeah, absolutely. So thinking about, you know, that's probably the biggest deciphering question when athletes come into clinic. Are they experiencing acute pain? Was there an injury? Or are they experiencing chronic, kind of more long-term pain? I will say apophysitis can fall in either or. It just kind of depends on how much distress the child is in, parents' approach to managing pain at home. And sometimes they may not take their kiddos in right away to be evaluated because they want to just kind of watch and see and see if things improve. Um, so sometimes apophysitis can be either acute or chronic. So that's kind of the the one that can float in between. But typically with acute injury, Injuries. When I'm evaluating them, I'm looking for those, you know, ligament injuries, those meniscus tears. Um, is there some potential fracture or, you know, um, other traumatic injury that results in that? When we think about chronic injuries, you know, we know there's not going to be potentially a huge discrepancy in the anatomy per se, where there's a big ligament tear or, you know, tendon avulsion or things like that. They're just having more strain or weakness and pain, you know, as a result of their injury. When I think about um, the approach and the anatomy, you're absolutely right. I, I kind of in my mind already break down a differential to families when I talk to them about it, you know, and my big groups are bone, do I think this is a bone injury? Is it ligament? Is it muscle or tendon? You know, kind of grouping them similarly the same. Is it a cartilage injury? You know, kids, because they generally are more cartilage at any point in time in their development than a true bone, you have to consider that injury as well differently from an adult with a cartilage injury, which is essentially an arthritic process. You know, the cartilage is thinned They've developed arthritis or bone spurs or something like that. In a child, the cartilage can soften and you can get, you know, cartilage defects or fraying from trauma, overuse, or even just defects that cause breakdown in the bone like an osteochondritis desiccans. So you have to consider some of those different things when a kid presents to you in the clinic with their pain. But the approach, you know, with an examination is always going to be the same regardless of what or how they're presenting with. And that way you're not missing or excluding other possibilities in your differential. So you brought up a couple different diseases already. You talked about Oscar Schlatter a little bit, and you know, I, I think we want to delve into a little bit more about that as well. And you know, I probably should have read the the script a little better because there's eponymous syndrome here that I'm having. I, I honestly do not remember this at all. What's the Sending Larson Johansson syndrome? Cole, I, 
I don't know where you pulled that out. I, I, I'm, I'm sorry, <laughs> I don't know what this is, but I'm, I'm, I guess I'm gonna have to ask. Yeah, SJL uh, man, obviously. <laughs> SLJ. It's SLJ. <laughs> That's why we don't use these acronyms or these names anymore. <laughs> but the way that I explain what SLJ is or sending Larson Johansson is it's essentially the cousin of Oshkosh Slaughter's. It's an apophysitis or stress and inflammation at the growth plate, but this is located at the inferior pole of the patella versus the tibial tuberosity or the tibial tubercle. And so it's literally just up the road um, from the patellar tendon at its other, essentially, attachment or stress point. And kiddos, the age group actually that presents, you know, with SLJ is a little younger, so they're probably more 8 to 13-year-olds. But there's overlap as your Oshgood patients can present somewhere a little bit older, like 10 to 15-year-olds. So you get a little overlap. And so your, your exam and where they're tender, where they might be swollen... Uh, is going to guide and direct which apophysitis, which acronym, you know, which alphabet soup you describe to this family about what's going on with uh, their kiddo's pain. Are you able to truly, I mean, I don't know that I would have the sensitivity to differentiate. I would say, I would, you know, if you'd say, is it the tibial tuberosity or the anterior patellar, I would say, you know, it's the low knee. Um, (laughs) On exam, are you able to kind of identify the location? And then to Chris's point, does it matter, you know, how does that affect treatment? Absolutely. So you can differentiate on your exam, especially in in a small child by exam. They don't hide very much. If something hurts, they're going to let you know that it hurts. And so, you know, when you're pressing on that tibial tuberosity or that inferior pole of the patella, they can differentiate. Now, sometimes you can get a little, you know, pain and swelling potentially between that, you know, highway in between. That patellar tendon can sometimes also accumulate some inflammation and it can be hard to differentiate sometimes. But ultimately, to to your point, there isn't necessarily a major change in the treatment plan. You know, typically when I see these athletes in clinic, we talk about a variety of different modalities and approaches for care and for treatment. The biggest thing that we talk about, you know, is what do we think about for short-term you know, pain relief, what can we do immediately to kind of improve this pain? And then how can we think about long-term knee health and making sure that we're doing some injury prevention where we can, um, because you've got a captive audience now because they're injured, right? And so how do we kind of start to instill some of these positive approaches to taking care of their bodies? So typically when we break down, when I break down treatment plan, talking about short-term pain relief, we're talking about things like ice and icing, which is great in an acute setting where you've got some inflammation, even in some chronic settings, if it's just festering, swelling, and inflammation and pain, ice is not harmful. Um, And so it could be something that could provide a little bit of relief. We're usually talking about non-steroidal anti-inflammatories as well as part of the treatment plan. And this can be done in a variety of ways depending on kind of who you discuss with and who you're talking with. You could do these orally by mouth. And so using things like ibuprofen, naproxen, those types of things can be helpful depending on your age group and who it's appropriate for. You can also use some uh, topical versions of a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory, which I like a lot as well, because it seems to almost get that instant gratification of pain relief sometimes too versus an oral medication. The typical product that's available out there is a diclofenac variant of a topical non-steroidal anti-inflammatory medication. And so um, those 
certainly can help with some pain relief. I also don't shy away from a good lidocaine patch or kind of cream just to kind of help instantly kind of numb some of that pain up and they can get some of that uh, instant pain relief as well. Then we're discussing, you know, bracing. Um, So thinking about, you know, would a patellar strap type brace be helpful in the scenario. The idea being that the patellar strap braces that are made nowadays, they all almost offer a a different fulcrum point for that patellar tendon to act its force and its stress on. And so in some ways, it can alleviate some of that tension and pulling that the tendon causes on that growth plate, which causes it to be an apophysitis. Sometimes, though, I've had some kiddos tell me it can be a little more painful, just depending if they've got some inflammation on that tendon. So we kind of, you know, troubleshoot and see what works best for them as far as their treatment plan. But by no means is it like a mandatory part of their treatment and that short-term relief. And then the long-term things we talk about, you know, is thinking about activity modifications. What can we do to, A, keep you active? We all know as, you know, either full-blown pediatricians or med-ped providers that activity in children's lives is very important, you know, uh, that they need to get out there and be active. And so rather than shutting them down fully from activity, what are some things that I can still allow you to do That's not going to provoke worse pain or, you know, make sure that you're not changing how you're running, how you're walking, and you can still participate and do the things that you enjoy and still be active and get the exercise that you need without making things worse. And then that final piece of the puzzle sometimes is some type of therapy program whether that's a home exercise program that we can provide in the clinic for them, focusing on a mix of stretching exercises, strengthening other muscle groups that may not be doing their part as far as motion and mechanics are involved, and that can offset some of that pain, or formal physical therapy. So those are some of the things that we address and we talk about at every clinic visit with each injury. And for the broad category of overuse injuries, especially when you're dealing with patients who are athletes, I'd be fascinated to hear your shared decision-making model or, you know, I imagine every patient who's coming in like this is saying, you know, they have one question. It's not what physical therapy regimen do you recommend? It's like, can I play in Saturday's game? You know, yep. what should, you know, can I still practice? And for, yeah, so for overuse injuries, I'd be curious of, of how you kind of approach that. Yeah, so when an athlete comes in and, and the the overarching theme of the visit is, overuse, right? You know, I think it's important for us to discuss just kind of general topics. And this is definitely addressed in the pediatrics and sport world about what's important about training, um, you know, what are proper activities or regimens for athletes based on their development in their age group and things like that. And so kind of a big area that we kind of focus on is time, time during the week. You know, the recommendation to minimize or try to prevent overuse injuries in general is that you take the athlete's age. So let's say we have an eight-year-old, an eight-year-old gymnast, and they are, the recommendation is for them not to train more than one hour per year of age in order to minimize or reduce the risk of overuse injuries. In a given week, is that right? So eight hours a week. Correct. Eight hours a week per activity. So Chris, we can train a lot. I know. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> well, I can only train absolutely. 20 or so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you can do many hours. Um, but in an athlete, in a youth athlete, we recommend. And so a lot of the discussions, again, just because of my gymnastics expertise and 
experience. I have a lot of these young athletes who are overtraining their bodies significantly, and we see a lot of these overuse injuries. So it's a hard conversation to have with parents about, well, your gymnast is training 12 hours a week, and this is why they you know, potentially have more of these overuse types injuries or stress fractures or things like that. So that's that's one piece that we talk about. Again, I will use gymnastics because it's the it's the most relevant and potentially one that that potentially we see a lot of overuse with. It's a sport that's done year round. The recommendation, you know, also for overuse is to at least have breaks, you know, at least a one month break from your sport and participation and activity. Some other sports require longer time for recovery in that time. A lot of things that I see maybe more commonly that we can kind of jump off the gymnastics train here, uh, my athletes who play soccer and basketball and tennis all at the same time. So they're doing, you know, all these different sports all in the same season. And so they may not play a particular sport, you know, for multiple prolonged hours in the week, but they're playing a lot of sports at the same time. Sometimes there are a lot of... um you know, similar sports. So now in the spring, we'll have track athletes. We have soccer in the spring. So sometimes those overlap and you've got an athlete that's just doing a lot of running. And believe it or not, that's going to generate a lot of knee pain or heel pain sometimes. You know, there's basketball. So I think that that athletes, I don't want to discourage athletes from participating in multiple sports, but the recommendation is to do, if you are going to do multiple sports, that there's different areas of the body potentially that are also exercised in you. So for example, if I have an athlete who really wants to play soccer over the spring and summer season, maybe they swim as their other activity, right? Because they're using their knees and their feet a lot less and it's more of an upper body core, great non-weight bearing, you know, activity that they can do to supplement their training. And ultimately, the research in, you know, early sports specialization shows that the more variety in sport that you get, the less, you know, likelihood that you're going to have a lot of these overuse or traumatic injuries as well. So you said a couple words like recovery and long-term treatment. Can you explain generally, like, what's the overall prognosis with some of these overuse injuries? Can they eventually get completely better? For those with Oscar Schlatter, will they, will that bump on that knee finally go away? Like, what, what are the things that uh, that you tell patients and their families? Yeah, so I jokingly tell families the cure for their Oscar Schlatter is for them to stop growing, and they never like that. So they wanna, they wanna keep getting taller. They wanna grow. They wanna, you know, do their activities. But ultimately, yes, these apophyseal injuries are self-limiting. They will resolve. There is a small portion of the population, especially with like Oshkosh slaughters, where the bump, that bump on that knee does remain, but it usually becomes painless. Uh, an even smaller segment of that that population that does maintain that bump can, you know, generate some pain. And that's where there's some discussion where they may need to have other interventions to eliminate pain in adulthood. Uh, Sometimes, although rarely, a surgical intervention is recommended to kind of remove that bump or shave that bump. But again, typically, this is something that's considered in in a patient that Um, has chronic pain again in adulthood. But most of the time we see that these apophyseal injuries are self-limiting and they resolve on their own. And so I want to be conscious of our time and thinking about the knee before we go on to the next step. uh, For an overuse chronic injury as uh, as an attempt for for me to teach back, um, the general approach, we try to localize it through the exam. Um, Ultimately, that's going to kind of help figure out exactly what's going on. 
though the treatments are going to be relatively standard, which are oral insets, topical insets, and some level of physical therapy. Are there other things about the knee that our, our listeners should go away with, or are there other red flags or second level injuries where we start to say, this is not the typical chronic knee pain that we can say is an overuse injury where we use this standard treatment, but this is a person who definitely needs a sports medicine referral, or uh, what are those other steps for kind of the more complicated presentations? Yeah, so I would say, and and generally, you know, as a part of when we have athletes who present with chronic pain, you know, they've essentially had some level of treatment potentially with their primary care provider, or they've seen another, you know, specialist, orthopedic specialist or sports medicine specialist in the community, you know, that may not have that pediatric background or just some other intel on how to manage, you know, the sports. But, you know, when an athlete comes in at that point and they're seeking a second opinion or trying to get some more information as to what's contributing to their pain, there are some other things that we need to consider. And so, you know, sometimes depending on the history that's kind of been gathered, we need to think about are there other pathologies that are not related to sport? Um, and so is there infectious etiology? Is there man- malignant or cancerous etiology, rheumatologic etiology? And so we build in some of these types of questions also to look at a broad differential that could affect the joint. And so once we kind of determine what the yield would be to do additional studies to evaluate some of this chronic pain. You know, sometimes we are getting some lab work, you know, to evaluate and do a screen for some other possibilities. Are we doing things like an MRI to look at more of the soft tissue pathology and see what could what else could be at play? Those types of things. So even though, you know, sometimes the history, you know, may seem one way we need to consider, you know, investigating and looking at some of these other possibilities in the differential that are outside of sports related injuries. I think some of the some of the big takeaways at least in somebody like a general provider, you know, trying to get some good information about their athletes is uh, having a good musculoskeletal review of systems and so thinking about how the joint moves or works and so you know we're constantly asking things in the clinic like are you getting some giving way? Are you getting uh, some locking of the joint, painful popping? So those types of mechanical types of things can also lead you in one direction or another. Sometimes I have athletes, even just with, you know, Oshkosh Lauders or SLJ, talk about giving way in the knee. And that's because they've just got just general quad weakness just developed over time from overuse. And so sometimes it's important to separate that and not be alarmed by some of those mechanical symptoms that can present as you're gathering your history, but it's also important to pay attention to them. And so if, you know, they're not improving with what you think is the right typical conservative treatment, definitely investigate that a little bit further, either with more imaging, lab work, additional history gathering, consults with other specialists. So... Yeah, so that's sort of my next question, you know, as a general pediatrician, how aggressive should we be? Like, at what point should I be thinking I need to get them over sports medicine? I know it may probably depend on the patient and their comfort level and maybe even like how competitive they are in their sport. So it was just like the kid likes to run on the playground a lot. And so they have Oscar Slatter from that versus the competitive gymnast who needs to get back. What are your general recommendations on when we should be starting to think about referral? 
That's an awesome question. So I think in general, I think you make a great point in the sense of if you have a higher level athlete with a really specific sport or activity that they're participating in, I think a sports medicine provider can be really helpful in guidelines for return to sport and return to activity. Based off of what I think your disease process is, this is a reasonable modification that we can make to your sport so that you can continue to participate and not cause either worsening pain, more damage to the joint, and things like that. And I think that's where I think families come in more appreciative than anything. And they're like, gosh, my pediatrician gave me all these great recommendations and the pain is getting better. I just don't know if my athlete can push through this or, you know, is it safe for my athlete to return to their activities, knowing what we know about their joint? And that's where I think as a sports specialist, we can intervene and give just kind of, you know, come in with the assist on that. Because I think a lot of our local pediatricians are shining and doing the right conservative treatments to start. And then if you've got some of those recalcitrant cases that don't improve with that typical, you know, conservative treatment, what are some things that we can potentially offer, you know, in addition to what you've already done, knowing that you've you've started that journey for us and where can we kind of supplement that along their way? I love it. And maybe one other question I had related to this, I remember in a rotation with a sports medicine doc, one of their pearls was that PT is not PT or like referral to PT is not the same as referral to PT in that one of their value added was they knew which PT place to go. Is that something that does play a major role? Like the quality of PT is actually more heterogeneous than we as primary care doctors would think? You have no idea. So when an athlete comes in and they, you know, I've diagnosed them with a specific pathology that doesn't need a surgical intervention, you know, it's something that's potentially related to mechanics, overuse, something along those lines. And my recommendation is physical therapy. And they're like, well, Dr. Condi, we've done physical therapy already. And I I say, no, you haven't. Mm. Uh, you, You may have thought you've done some physical therapy, but I need you to work with our pediatrics, sports trained physical therapists. And what I like to do, and I think we're, we're really fortunate at our institution that I can identify certain physical therapists at different locations that have some expertise that's very sport specific. So, you know, at, at one of my locations, I have a former Miami Red Hawk volleyball player. She knows volleyball. She gets volleyball, right? I have at another location a retired gymnast, high-level gymnast like myself. And so they understand that a gymnast, if a physical therapist sees a gymnast in clinic, sometimes they don't know what to tell them to do. They're so strong. Gymnasts in general just build a tremendous amount of just global body strength compared to any other athlete, I think, kind of in any sport. And so they may not feel challenged because the therapist that they're working with may not understand the demands of their sport, the technique, what they need to do to return to activity. But when I plug them in with a sports physical therapist who was a high-level competitive gymnast and then, you know, myself in their corner directing their care, the improvements and the way that they get back to sport is remarkable. And I think game they changer. notice and recognize that it's a huge game changer. Literal yeah. game changer. Literal that, game changer. <laughs> yeah. Excellent. Yeah. Cool. So we're going to continue to move down distal from the knee. And uh, I'm going to read this beautiful stem that Nicole wrote. It's a beautiful, crisp fall morning. And Juliet, a 10-year-old soccer player, comes into your clinic with bilateral foot pain. She says it hurts in her heels 
and the left is worse than the right. She's a youth soccer player and started having pain early in the season after a two-day weekend tournament, and it has gotten so bad. She has to sit out the last game after she started limping in practice. Her heels now hurt whenever she walks around, but improves with rest. So, <laughs> um, you read it that way, but let me tell you, that's you like how that? it's told like to that? me in clinic sometimes. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, I'm in it. I'm like, I'm here on this crisp, beautiful fall day. And if you let an 11 year old tell you the story, you're going to be there for 20 minutes. Let me tell you, <laughs> they're going to tell you what their what Gatorade they were drinking, what flavor, what snacks were brought. So, I mean, that was well done. I feel awesome. I'm there. I'm in clinic. Awesome. So I guess my, my question is like, so you let them unfold the story in front of you. What are the next questions you're, you're going to ask them? How are you going to unpack this and, and decipher sort of this chief complaint? Absolutely. So big things that I try to decipher. Sometimes I don't have to ask. They've they've kind of shared this with me. But, you know, is this an acute injury? Is this a chronic thing? Uh, how long has this been going on for? And then location. Can they identify and localize where their pain is coming from? Sometimes it's hard to direct, especially a child, to have them tell you where it hurts. And so our big rule is take one finger and show us the one spot that it hurts. And then their favorite thing is just to just circle the whole area. And that's difficult to try to have them pinpoint that. But as best we can, we try to localize where this pain is coming from. Uh, I ask about quality or characteristics of the pain. Is it sharp? Is it an achy feeling? Are you throbbing all the time? Is there swelling? Is there bruising that you've noticed? We talk about some other affiliated symptoms potentially. You know, does do you feel like your foot goes numb? Does it tingle afterwards? Are you getting some painful popping? You know, a lot of kids will say, oh, yeah, I pop all the time, but it's not painful. And so that can kind of redirect, you know, the significance of that symptom to what's going on in their in their history. Can you talk about that too? The popping without pain, I feel like that's always something I struggle with. Does yeah. that mean anything? What, what, yeah, what, what, when it someone doesn't. says it, what is that? Oh, thank goodness. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. So if they mention, and that's where I ask, you know, kind of my quick phrase is any pop snaps cracks. And they say, yeah. And I say, well, is it, is it painful? And they're like, no, gosh, I pop snap crack all the time. And that's out of my mind. Typically, you know, it's not an issue unless it's painful. And they'll identify to you um, if it's painful or not. Absolutely. Then thinking about some other mechanical symptoms, do you feel like your foot or ankle is giving out on you? Does it feel weak? Do you feel like it can't support what you want to do? Um, does it get locked or stuck? Or do you feel some catching kind of within? That's a hard one to explain sometimes to kiddos, you know, but I think of kind of the best way that I try to communicate is thinking about, you know, something that slides and is supposed to be slippery, like a joint that's supposed to move freely and fluidly. And do they feel like things are interrupting that movement? And so trying to get them to identify that sometimes can be tricky, especially in the younger kids. Um, but looking at those different symptoms symptoms can be really helpful. And then I always ask a ton about the sport that they play, how much training, what position they play, because that can dictate also just the amount of, you know, impact that maybe they have on a certain joint. So thinking about a, a, a soccer player who is forward and strikes and does a lot of running and kicking versus a goalkeeper. And they're not doing as much of that. So potentially that can dictate and generate certain pathologies in my mind a little bit better. 
Are they playing outdoor soccer? Is it on a turf field? Is it on a grass field? Is it indoor soccer? Is it futsal? So, you know, determining that can also help direct, especially with an athlete with foot pain, the different types of cleats or sneakers or different things that they're using. And is that contributing to some of the pain that they're feeling as well? So getting an in-depth understanding, have them bring you into their world of what sports is like for them. And and that way you can kind of generate, okay, this is what the most likely thing that could be bothering you is. So similar to, you know, when we're talking about the knee, this sort of foot stem, the symptoms are bilateral. And, you know, there are not many bilateral things that we get a lot in medicine. Is this one of those indicators? You're like, oh, it's, you know, this is something that, you know, they may use, especially in overuse injuries, like the same. And is that, is that one of those things that you think about when you hear bilateral foot, bilateral knee is overuse, like high on that differential then just based on that? It usually is. Um, A lot of the sports and activities that kids play, they typically use their extremities equally. There are very limited sports that do that, but I do, you know, make sure that I ask. So for example, in a soccer player, I ask them, is this your dominant shooting leg and passing leg? And that may be more of a reference to if they're having some knee pain, right? Thinking about mechanics of how to kick a soccer ball. They're going to do a lot of flexion and extension. So they may develop some more Oshgood on that right side than the left. Going back to Seavers in a gymnast who does activities barefoot, they're hugely at risk for something like an apophysitis bilaterally because they're doing hard landings on their feet barefoot. However, sometimes they can also have some type of laterality to their complaint because in gymnastics, they can do some tumbling with a dominant leg as well. So they may have pain on both sides, but sometimes there may be a preference or a laterality to it. And that can be kind of indicated by certain skills or activities that they do maybe a little bit more of in their sport. Bilateral pain is usually a little more reassuring than unilateral in that sense of thinking about overuse and providing that type of reassurance to families. And you mentioned Severs disease, which is another form like Ostrichlauter of apophysitis, correct, or inflammation of, of the growth plate, which is obvious why we would see that in, in pediatrics. Do you have a sense if are those the most common causes of overuse injuries in pediatrics? Is it these just kind of inflammation at the growth plates? Um, and if not, you know, what are other things that would point you away? Is it apophysitis until proven otherwise? Um, or maybe are there the special tests? What's your approach to that, I guess? Yeah, that's a great question. And so, yes, typically, in especially in an athlete that does have these open growth plates, that is the weakest link at that point. So there's a lot of turnover in those cartilage cells as the athlete is growing and developing, and that just makes them the most susceptible to injury versus true osseous bone or a ligament or a muscle or a tendon. Typically, especially in like the younger age groups, we're going to see a lot more osseous injuries. So thinking about bone, whether they're affiliated with a growth plate injury or not. So thinking about our Salter-Harris classifications and how you can stem some injuries to the growth plate into the osseous bone versus a ligament or a muscle or a tendon just because 
Uh, children tend to have a lot more elasticity than like an adult would. And so typically you're not going to get those big ligament muscle or tendon tears as an adult would. And so potentially you're focusing more on the physis, the growth plate, and the bone a little bit more on an injury depending on their age group. Typically when an, an athlete comes in and we're talking about this, the process at the top of the differential list is going to be an apophysitis. But to your point, you can't fully exclude that that maybe hasn't developed into a stress injury, a stress fracture. Is there a little tendinopathy associated with it or a tendinitis, tendinosis, just kind of depending on the extent, maybe the chronicity, different activities that they're doing that can provoke or make that pain worse that can lead to just chronic overuse in other portions of the anatomy. Are there other things that we need to keep on our list of differentials? Are there important red flags that we need to be aware of? And then I'll let you answer that first and then I have my next <laughs> question then. Yeah, so I would say big things that potentially are part of my kind of musculoskeletal review of systems when I have an athlete come in is we talk about, you know, pain, specifically pain that wakes them at night. So this always goes into my question, especially if there's some chronic pain in an athlete who's otherwise healthy. Yes, they may have some history of overuse, but I want to make sure that I'm not missing or excluding some of those things. Is there affiliated fevers, chills, weight loss, those B symptoms that we worry about as far as like other pathology? But typically, you know, on the differential in the right age group, these apophyseal or apophysitis injuries are going to be the most common. And you just want to make sure that you don't miss anything that potentially could be dangerous or harmful. And so a lot of the times we end up going down the road of treating an apophysitis, for example, like Seavers, and they improve and they do great. And we kind of hit the nail on the head as far as treatment and management, but then sometimes they don't get better. And so sometimes you have to delve into either those history or diagnostic findings a little bit further. You know, typically we don't x-ray a child who may present with an apophyseal injury, but if you've kind of tried all your conservative tricks and they're not getting better, an x-ray could be worthwhile to make sure that you're not missing, you know, a silly little avulsive injury, a mass lesion somewhere in the calcaneus, although rare and atypical, certainly can be possible. So Cole, Cole wanted to let us know that he, he often has parents come in saying, hey, I think I have what my kid has. I, I, I've been diagnosed with plantar fasciitis. Is this something that can happen with kids? They have said the parent has Severs disease. They, they yeah, Severs. right. Oh, that makes <laughs> that's, sense. That's uh, when you're breaking yeah. the bad news to them. <laughs> they're a child. They're never going to grow up. But I will say, I think a lot of parents, that is a big frustration of ours, is that they come in and say, oh, gosh, this is a lot like plantar fasciitis. And children typically do not get plantar fasciitis. And so parents will have a lot of, of input on when they think is going on with their child, with their athlete. But uh, usually using a tool of, again, teaching them about the anatomy, how children grow and develop and are a little bit different from the anatomy of an adult, it gives them all that knowledge in the world and they become more accepting of what your, your expert opinion is and what they think might be going on and understand, hey, yeah, I guess that is a different spot from where you know, my pain typically is uh, versus kind of what they're experiencing, what they're going through and how it's related to their sport and athletics. One of the common things you mentioned when you're approaching 
the the differential here is the special tests. And so for a person with foot pain, what are some of those special tests that you might be doing to try to help localize, to rule in Sever's disease, Sever's uh, foot versus other causes of foot pain? Yeah. So I think the the most distinguishing and specific test that you can do to kind of confirm that diagnosis is what's called the calcaneal squeeze test. Uh, this can be done in a variety of ways. I perform it just with one hand and essentially I just cup the calcaneus or the heel in my hand. And by that point, I have each end of the physis between my thumb and my index finger, and I just give it a good squeeze. And that by that point, the if the child has, they'll identify that that's where their pain is. You can certainly palpate over other portions. There are other bony prominences of the calcaneus, specifically like that superior facet portion where sometimes you can develop a deformity or an anomaly like a Haglund's deformity, which is just instead of the smooth superior surface of the calcaneus, it looks kind of more like a ship sail. And that can sometimes indicate a different type of stress from the Achilles onto the bone versus on the physis. Uh, a lot more rare to see in children's, but we do definitely do see that in some of our teens or preteens as they're growing and developing. Other types of special tests, there's a lot of squeezing. So you can do a midfoot squeeze to see if there's any pathology in the midfoot. Um, you can certainly kind of stress the ligaments in certain areas, again, knowing your anatomy and what you're testing for in the foot itself. And then a lot of times I'm testing, trying to test individual muscle groups if I can. And so knowing where the muscle originates, where the tendon attaches can be really helpful in kind of illuminating, yeah, you might have maybe a little tendinopathy and I think it's this muscle or this tendon that's the culprit, right? And thinking about more specifically like the medial ankle and foot, you know, you have your tibialis posterior muscle and tendon that comes around that medial malleolus but so does your flexor hallucis longus, right? And so trying to identify by palpation may not be specific enough. And so you have to test either motion or resisted strength and kind of determine who is being the most affected here, even though they've got medial foot pain. And so dictating a lot of using that, that thought of anatomy and knowing what the job is of each muscle group can be really helpful to identify some of that. And then I also look at a lot of functional movement as well. So I'll have an athlete stand on a single leg and show me their balance. And so I can generate a lot of um, kind of general diagnoses of ankle pronation, impaired proprioception. Do our foot intrinsics maybe not work as well as they need to? What is a single leg heel raise or kind of getting up on the calf or what we call a releve? What does that look like? Do they have good control coming up into that position? What does their control look like coming down from being up on their toes? And so you can generate a lot of kind of global mechanical diagnoses to some of these patients. And so a lot of the times I'll see an athlete do a heel raise and I know that their heel cord is tight because they don't get as high and they slam their heel down right at the very end because they don't have the muscle strength, the control. And that's probably what's causing their inflammation and contributing to some of their Seavers disease. And so looking at some of that and explaining it to parents that way, it's like, 
okay, we can do something about this, right? We can kind of teach how to maybe land their tumbling pass a little bit better or, you know, thinking about their running mechanics and how they need to maybe be a little bit more of a forefoot runner than a big heel strike runner. So different things like that can really inform the family on not just specific anatomy and pathology, but more functional day-to-day things they can do within their sport. And so it sounds like one of the core treatments is some of those nuances that physical therapy or a good sports medicine provider can give is the common treatment modality. Chris and I love to treat things. You know, we're not, we're not, sometimes we don't even diagnose it. We just start treating it uh, and just see like what house. happens. Yeah. Just like house. The, yeah. I assume, you know, for a lot of these musculoskeletal overuse injuries, the big picture treatments are going to be relatively similar, oral NSAIDs, physical therapy, maybe some topical NSAIDs. Are there other things, though, that we should be aware of, other treatments, other diagnoses that may warrant other, you know, treatment, you know, referring to, I don't know, orthotics or doing some other type of things? Like, when, what are we thinking about as far as treatment? When are we kind of breaking from that heuristic of PT and NSAIDs? Yeah, that's a great question. We get a lot of this too. We'll get a lot of referrals from, you know, general local pediatricians about, you know, things like pes planus or ankle pronation and those types of things, which are a factor and contribute, you know, a lot of the time to performance and mechanics in an athlete. You know, there's not a lot of great literature out there about orthotics and their impact from like a scientific standpoint, but we get a lot of good anecdotal, you know, evidence from families of, hey, you know, we've had orthotics since we were eight years old and it's time for a new set because our feet are grown and the orthotic hasn't maintained its shape. And so there's always opportunity for that. I would say it's never, it should never be like a like a mainstay or a big pillar in your treatment, but certainly an adjunct or a supplement, you know, to think about certain things, especially when you know that they're more susceptible maybe to improper mechanics. Like, you know, if their ankle pronates medially and you've got some hind foot valgus, can a simple orthotic really take away a lot of their pain? And so that's definitely something that you certainly can consider. And I will suggest you know, there's different schools of thought for things like that. And so with an athlete who potentially is going through puberty, they're doing a lot of growing. You don't necessarily want a family to spend a lot of money on like a big custom orthotic. And so trying some things over the counter are super reasonable. We're very fortunate that our physical therapy offices within our institution do like a semi-custom orthotic where it's an orthotic off the shelf that they can mold and fit to the athlete and the specific problems that we are identifying that are contributing. And they can even make a version for like their sports shoes. So, you know, a sneaker is very different from a soccer cleat or a cheer shoe, very narrow, and they have certain kind of shapes and things that are maybe different. And so they, they are able to facilitate that. And that sometimes can make a big difference in what the athlete is able to tolerate. And sure, maybe they do get some foot pain or aches and fatigue, but it's going to be a lot less quickly. So, you know, instead of having some pain and having to sit out 
you know, 30 minutes into a two hour practice, maybe now they can go 60 minutes, you know, and, and that sometimes can be a subtle, you know, but significant improvement in their training and what they're able to do. And so potentially they're worthwhile because they're not harmful. They just may not always have that evidence-based benefit that we're always looking for in medicine but worth a shot and worth a try. And we get asked about this a lot from our families if they're worthwhile. And we definitely say, hey, yeah, could be worthwhile. I wouldn't go spend in hundreds of dollars on a custom orthotic, but absolutely, yeah, definitely go try some things out and see if you notice a benefit. And then to that point too, you know, um, I have athletes, 16-year-olds that come in and they've got some of these issues and they're asking about orthotics. And I'm like, you've been walking this way for 15 years. This is not an overnight fix, right? And it's not going to be an overnight fix in your three-hour football game on Friday night. Um, This is something that you have to gradually introduce, you know, with day-to-day activities, make sure it's not increasing pain because we've seen that sometimes too where an athlete tries an orthotic and their pain is worse um, than what their kind of normal anatomy is and they much rather would tolerate you know, without it. And so making sure that we're not affecting their performance, that's then subsequently causing some of these acute injuries that can happen on the field just because they've changed what they're using or what they're, what's in their shoe um, or that kind of thing. So. I love thinking about referral and PT as modification strategies to, to really help. And so one other question we always like to ask is when the patient's at the specialist's office, what can you do on your first visit that we're not able to do? If, if we're in a rural area or, uh, you know, if we want to really try to be everyone's specialist, we've got 12 other things we're trying to address with them, we're trying to avoid these referrals. What are some of the things that uh, the uh, specialist office does on that first visit? And what are maybe some of the other resources or things that a sports medicine doc can do that uh, I might not be able to do and Chris definitely won't be able to do? So actually, we get this presenting to our clinic quite often. It's the story that my local pediatrician has, you know, offered me heel cups and they've given me stretches and I'm doing all the ice and NSAIDs to try to help with pain, but this just doesn't get better. And so usually when they're presenting to our office, we're talking about some other, you know, potentially still conservative management points, including things like a pneumatic walking boot. And so sometimes if a child presents with they've used the heel cups, maybe it's a little more unilateral. Sometimes we have to be creative with bilateral heel pain. We're putting a child in some type of an immobilization device to help, A, offset the pressure, direct pressure that they may be placing on the heel and also the movement of the ankle joint. So that gastroc muscle, that soleus complex together forms that Achilles tendon, which drives the flexion of the foot. And that is typically where that's the tendon that's causing the apophyseal injury as it attaches on the growth plate. And so by immobilizing them in something like a pneumatic walker, you're allowing that tendon to not pull on that growth plate and contribute to some of that pain. And sometimes the pneumatic walker fails in our clinic and sometimes we have to escalate all the way up to casting. It's rare, um, but we have a few cases of either chronic or recalcitrant sievers where we are placing them in a cast. Um, The benefit, I think, of casting nowadays is we do offer waterproof casts. They can be weight-bearing in the cast, which is great, so they still feel mobile and they don't have to learn how to use crutches a lot of the time. So they're still able to use a cast shoe for support if we go in that direction. 
And like I said, most families are grateful, especially now in the spring and summer, where they can, um, you know, bathe with a cast on, they can jump in a pool with a cast on, that kind of thing. And so there's definitely other resources within our clinic that we can escalate to to try to help with pain. And then, of course, that activity modification is always, especially sports specific, can be really helpful. You know, a lot of the times I will place a child who's playing basketball in a boot But I'm telling them, hey, you can go to the gym. You can work on your free throw shot. You should not be jumping in a free throw shot. So if we're purely working on upper body mechanics, you can technically work on your free throw shooting in a walking boot, right, or in a cast. Similarly, you know, an athlete who plays volleyball, you can stand at the back of the court and work on your serving technique, right? And so there are some things that you can still offer and modify and be creative with the athlete, knowing what their different skills and sport requirements are to still keep them engaged and, you know, eliminate some of those possibilities. You know, organized sports are not only great physically, but they have huge social and mental impacts on these kids. And so not alienating them from their sport or their activity or their team, still keeping them involved as much as you can, but keeping them safe and not, you know, progressing their disease process. And I think families really appreciate when you can kind of work with them and modify what they're able to do and still let them do what they love. I think this is great. I think this is a core theme that is really helpful to kind of understand when we hit that referral button what happens next. Um, this has been great. We went, we went from the knee to the foot and now, unfortunately, we ran out. We should have gone up instead, but we ran out of body parts. <laughs> so we should we should wrap up. Um, but for our listeners, for uh, people who are less exposed to sports medicine, what are some of the big take-home points you think in approaching some of these overuse injuries? I think the, the biggest take-home point is, you know, I think musculoskeletal injuries in general can be really intimidating. I I don't know. And I think there's a lot of at least uh, medical education literature out there that shows there's a paucity of education on musculoskeletal system in general. And so just like a word of encouragement to all of those general pediatricians or primary care providers out there, there's nothing to be intimidated about. If you need to reference and look back at your anatomy, that will help you significantly. I think if you can have a good resource or a reference that you like, you know, a Netter's Anatomy book or just some fun, you know, cartoons. I pull up images on Google all the time for my families to show them the anatomy, you know, because sometimes it's not clear on an x-ray or an MRI. And so having those different like go-to resources that you can not only reference yourself, but you can show your families and reference with your families to show them a little bit because a lot of this can be pretty visual, but don't be discouraged. And then that way you can kind of generate knowing your anatomy, what your differential diagnosis is and organize your thought process a little bit better And the same thing kind of goes for your physical exam. If you keep up with the same kind of principles of inspection, palpation, motion, strength, and special tests, even if you don't know the special tests, you can generate, you know, a good idea roughly of what the more likely differential is based off of what you're finding on your exam. Love it. And a great shout out to Netters, a throwback. Any <laughs> any other things you, I think, are worth plugging that we should send listeners to to check out? I don't have any specific resources. Some books, um, 
<laughs> Believe it or not, I'm actually looking at it right now in my office. There's a Concise Orthopedic Anatomy by Netters. Again, another shout out old school, but those are some of the books that uh, kind of we use. There's a couple of good resources out there for pediatric orthopedics and sports injuries. So thinking about more of the pediatric pathology. And so, you know, a good reference. There's those five-minute consult sport medicine books that are helpful as well that could be worthwhile. Just keeping a couple of resources that you can reference either within your office. Everything's electronic now. So I I mean, I literally just pull up Google and one of my, I have like a couple of my favorite go-tos that I show frequently that I just, I don't even look anymore. I just kind of click on the picture once I find it. So for example, and we didn't get to it today and maybe in another lecture in the future, but a hip apophysitis, you know, picture that shows, hey, this is where the physis is. This is a muscle attachment to it and kind of connecting that easily for families and quickly. It's like, it's watching their mind explode just right in clinic and they understand and explaining the the pathology with movement is really cool and neat to kind of connect. And so I think if you just kind of either develop your go-to either electronic resources or book resources, I think the big key point is know your anatomy. And that's what an orthopedic surgeon would pimp and tell you to know as well. <laughs> but yeah, we yeah, do yeah. it in a lot more. Yeah. It, full we circle do it in back a lot. to your gymnastics It case. is. It is, but we we do it in a lot more, um, you know, gentle, uh, loving way of know of your anatomy. <laughs> and sorry, did you say hippo hop uh, is it like a hippo? Or <laughs> yeah, that, like a hip hop hip hop anatomist. Yeah, is that? <laughs> yeah, it, it, yeah. Oh, nice. No. <laughs> wow. no, I thought, I thought, I thought that was the thing. I thought maybe that was the research. We're rapping. Like a hippo we're and, rapping. Yeah, amazing. Uh, no, I wish that would <laughs> yeah. be really cool. We do have we do have those little things that we do incorporate, uh, especially in overuse injuries. You know, I like to I like to brag about my teaching and education sometimes, and so if I'll pull up. Uh, a spine x-ray and you know I'm like well they teach us in school to look for the Scotty dog to tell us if you've got a stress injury so we talk about those kinds of things and there's fun things like that to talk about kids get really excited when you tell them they have bonus bones or accessory bones Ooh. those are a lot of fun to talk about in clinic they feel like they own bragging rights to that and so those are fun things to to talk about in clinic but no I said hip apophysitis got it hip apophysitis <laughs> I was hoping there was like a hippopotamus that you could go and look at all the anatomy things. I'm making this run over time. This was wonderful. This was excellent. Uh, thank you for this wonderful tour of the knee and the foot. I feel uh, much more equipped to address these overuse injuries. Uh, Dr. Lissacondi, thank you so much for joining us on the Cribsiders. Thanks so much for having me. This was fun. And we're going to have you, have you back for all those upper extremity things. Great. Yeah, I'm excited. Whole... I'm looking forward to it. Yeah. All there's the a choice. ton more. All the all there's right. so many things we can talk about <laughs> for sure. Perfect. This has been another episode of the Cribsiders. It's for the kids. Get show notes and sign up for our weekly Knowledge Food Formula Feeds newsletter on our website, www.thecribsiders.com. We are committed to providing you with high-value, practice-changing knowledge, and to do that, we need your feedback. So please subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast player. You can also email us at thecribsiders at gmail.com. A special thanks to our producers for this episode, Dr. Brian Ward and Dr. Cole Papakarikos, our showrunner, Dr. Sam Mazur, and our wonderful social media team on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, and our newsletter champion, Dr. Brian Ward. Thank you for joining us. I've been Justin Lee Burke. 
I've been the Brian Ward. Thank you and have a good night. Hey, you've already listened to the entire episode. Now claim CME credit. Continuing education credit is provided by VCU Healthcare Continuing Education. VCU is accredited to provide continuing education to the entire healthcare team. Check it out at cribsiders.vcuhealth.org for more information and to claim your credit after listening to this episode.